coming soon to own on video and DVD. It's Disflix and Tidbits, the Disney podcast about Disney movies from the past, present, and coming soon, and all the little extras in between. I'm your one and only host, Cassie, trying to make up for lost time, and today is April 10th, episode 18, Post-Renaissance Villain. Hey everyone, thanks for taking the time to download and listen to the Disflix and Tidbits podcast. Those who have stuck around with me in the beginning know that I have missed regular episode last week. I apologize with that, but I did try to make it up to everyone by also publishing two other episodes a Dumbo movie review, and an episode of Once I Watched at Disney. That one is featuring Trent and Jenny from the Disney DNA podcast. It was a very fun and entertaining episode. We were looking at James and the Giant Peach and trying to put it through our memory test, and you should really find out if we really liked it and if it's worth re-watching again. Also, I have another Once I Watched a Disney coming up this Saturday with another member of another podcast. Actually, the Part of Our World podcast, and the movie may or not be a standout movie of the 90s. So we got some exciting guests coming up for the main show, exciting topics, exciting everything. So please stay tuned. Um, Bear with me. Sometimes... You know, life gets in the way and you have to you have to put things aside to get things done. So don't worry, I'm still here. I will always, well, not always, I can't promise that, but I will have something at least once a week. I do have another once I watch the Disney next week. And if you are looking to be a guest on this show, I do have some openings in the next coming weeks for a guest on once I watch the Disney. I will give you a list of the movies that we can rewatch together. You know, the whole deal. So just send me an email my way at disflixandtidbits at gmail.com and, and we can talk it through. If you noticed before, I have done in past episodes that there will be like a recommendation for the week or a friend that I want to plug. Well, this week it is a talented group over at the Disney versus Disney Debates podcast. They are actually, actually, I will let them explain who they are. The Disney vs. Disney Debates podcast is all about finding the answer to one simple question. What is the best Disney movie of all time? Maybe the question isn't that simple. So join us every Saturday as hosts from all across That's Not Canon fight for their movies in one-on-one debates moderated by me, Zane C. Weber. In order to decide once and for all which of Disney's beloved classics or recent hits will take the crown. Save it for the show. Available now on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find podcasts. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast. So be sure to check them out. It's a great listen. They have some great arguments for each movie, despite which powerhouse movie they're up against. They're really fun. So please check them out. So now let's get on to the news. 
For the week of April 5th through the 7th, the box office numbers got a little bit shaken up with the release of both Shazam from DC and Pet Cemetery. The two more recent movies released by Disney are still in the top five. Captain Marvel is ranked in fifth, grossing at 12 million over the weekend in its fifth week, which is still pretty good. Dumbo in its third week, making a little over 18 million over in its second weekend, down almost 60% from its opening weekend. Pet Cemetery, the rated R remake of the 1989 film based on the Stephen King novel, was in second in box office sales with over $24 million, and Shazam ranking in first with a whopping $53 million for their for its opening weekend. Wow. Outside of the weekend, a big congrats on all the people of Marvel who made Captain Marvel happen because the movie cleared $1 billion at the box office and became the 38th movie to ever do that higher further faster we have a lot of great movies in theaters right now so it's just gonna change in the next coming weeks <laughs> in overall disney news some exciting news came out of CinemaCon. now CinemaCon, for those who don't know is a convention that started in 2011 to celebrate and to gather around to appreciate worldwide motion pictures this year it took place from april 1st through the 4th in las vegas one of the announcements was that Disney is still planning on making more alien movies and with Ridley Scott still involved and they're actively working on a movie right now. So what they're working on now is still a mystery, but uh, we don't know which sequel they're going to go towards. So we'll, we'll see in the coming months. Uh, Disney also has a film coming out on April 17th called Penguins, which is part of the Disney Nature series documenting penguins in their natural habitat. I think this documentary follows a penguin that they are naming Steve and follows him and other male penguins as they go on a journey to start a family. This movie will be released just five days before Earth Day, and since Disney Nature has been providing movies for 10 years, they came out with a cute video of their highlights over the years, and it's been posted on YouTube, which I will provide a link for you in case you haven't seen any of the movies in the past. In Disney Animation News... The Little Mermaid will be turning 30 this year in November, so Disney has been doing some promotional things for the big milestone. Earlier this year, they released The Little Mermaid out on DVD, Blu-ray, and Ultra 4K, and is releasing some Little Mermaid merchandise here and there. But a big event celebrating the birthday will happen on May 17th. The Little Mermaid live production will return to the Hollywood Bowl for two days only. Like most Hollywood Bowl productions, the cast will be accompanied by a full orchestra while the, ori while the original film will play on a movie screen in the back of the bowl. I never witness witnessed this at all, and by that I mean I haven't seen any video, video of this production in the past that debuted three years ago, but it sounds like they will be recreating just the songs with elaborate background and props. I don't know. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Leah Michelle from Glee will be playing Ariel. Harvey Fierstein, who has played Edna Turdblad from Hairspray, will be playing Ursula. Ken Page, the voice of Oogie Boogie, will be playing Sebastian. And newcomer Leo Gallio will be playing Prince Eric. It sounds like a lot of fun and an exciting time with a great cast of singers, and I really hope they film some of this for the others to watch on YouTube. <laughs> And Disney live-action news, since I have been absent from the last episode, Dumbo was released in theaters on March 29th. I also got to see it over opening weekend, which I did do a review of, and it was released last week on this feed under Disflix and Tickets. 
my reviews do have a spoiler-free portion and some extra thoughts with spoilers towards the end of the episode. So if you want to listen to it and you haven't watched it, you can go ahead and I will prompt you when to stop and you can stop and move on to your next (laughs) podcast on your playlist. But be sure to check it out and I would like to know what you thought if you did watch it. We got a few new stories coming from the Aladdin live action movie. First, a new movie trailer came out on March 31st that had a few new scenes, but uh, it was a bit shorter than the previous trailer before that. This one has two voiceovers, one of Will Smith as the genie stating that he is going to tell the story of Aladdin, a princess, and a lamp, and then a voiceover of Jafar telling Aladdin about the Cave of Wonders. This trailer made me immediately think of the origin story that it was based off of. The 1001 Nights or the 1001 Arabian Nights, whichever you know the title as, Aladdin is one of the stories of this book and it is a story that is told by the main character of the book, uh, Shahara, I think I'm saying that right, who is a new wife of a king. He, He threatens her life once she will complete the story, so she continues to tell stories so she will keep from getting killed. And, well, Aladdin is a long story amongst other stories. So this Aladdin story is much different than the one told from Disney. And Will Smith's first lines is very reminiscent of that. So I thought maybe that they're going to go off the cuff a little bit. Also, Jafar, who in the story is called a magician or a sorcerer from Africa who comes up to Aladdin claiming to be his long-lost uncle and tries to give Aladdin a better life and act better, which his real motive behind that is to get him to get the lamp in a cave. This little plot point in the story kind of makes a lot of sense for why Jafar in the trailer isn't disguised at all as an old man and is talking to Aladdin one-on-one. A lot of people were like, wait, why isn't he old man? So maybe that's the direction that they're going on. And to have a little curveball in it, as opposed to the Beauty and the Beast film that was like kind of shot for shot. So maybe they learned their lesson from that one, that they're kind of changing the story a little bit. If you are interested in hearing more about the true origin story of Aladdin, I do recommend checking out the the Disney Story Origins podcast. There is a three-part episode on Aladdin, and it is excellent. So Disney and Hasbro released Aladdin collectible dolls that resembled the characters from the movie, much like they did with Beauty and the Beast, which gained a lot of attention because Belle, modeled after Emma Watson, looked like Justin Bieber instead. (laughs) These dolls didn't try to become more realistic, like they had to be more like a stylized look to capture the characters of the movie. The dolls that are going to be released are Aladdin in his Prince Ali getup, Jasmine in her teal blue outfit, a blue Will Smith genie, and Jafar, and a character that is new to the story, Dahlia, whoever she is, probably a friend to Jasmine. The collection will be available on Hasbro's site for pre-sale on April 22nd if you're interested. In Marvel news, oh wow, you can tell Avengers Endgame is just around the corner with the next couple of news stories. <laughs> On April 2nd, we were all treated with another Endgame trailer from Marvel Studios, which featured the leftover Avengers as they were preparing for their next move. As exciting as it was, the most exciting part were the last four words printed and spoken at the, at the end of the trailer tickets on sale now. 
The masses went wild and stormed the ticket-selling sites like AMC and Fandango, which ultimately crashed those sites completely for most of the day. Twitter was raging left and right, how they couldn't get into the site, while very few were shouting with joy that they purchased the tickets for opening night. I myself couldn't get in in until 2 p.m. Mountain Time, about five hours of trying. (laughs) A lot of people came together on Twitter, though, giving everyone suggestions and alternative locations to buy tickets while the sites were down. It was kind of a sweet and chaotic moment all at the same time. But uh, AMC finally released an apology at 8 p.m. Eastern on April 2nd that everything was back on, but by that time, I think... The damage has already been done. I'm actually not going on opening night, but I will be going on that Saturday. So I'm really, really excited. Who else is excited? <laughs> Another Avengers Endgame clip was released on April 8th from a Good Morning America segment. Many people were warning everyone that the small clip contains spoilers, which is kind of odd to me. This trailer is about the Avengers planning their attack and that's it it's it's a small clip probably about less than two minutes long uh as always i leave a link in the show notes of the clip if you want to decide to watch it or not i don't really think it's a spoiler but you can decide if you like the last bit of the last bit of avengers news on april 5th some of the cast of avengers endgame came to disney's california adventure for a very special event They were celebrating the donation over $5 million donated by Disney, Lego, Hasbro, Funko, and Amazon towards nonprofits supporting children with critical illnesses. On top of that, Disney is donating over $1 million in cash towards the Starlight Children's Foundation and over $4 million worth of Avengers Endgame toys and merchandise from Disney, Lego, Hasbro, Funko, and Amazon to children's hospitals across America which is so amazing. The Avengers stars also spent time and played with toys with the Boys and Girls Club of Anaheim and Garden Grove, which was truly remarkable. It was such a sweet and tender moment. So back in 2018, Marvel Studios announced that they would be making a series of movies based on The Eternals. The Eternals were created by Jack Kirby in the late 1970s, which was about a group of advanced evolution of humans that were partially created by an alien race called the Celestials, who intended on the Eternals to be protectors of Earth. So that is a comic book series by Marvel, of course. Chloe Zhao has been named the director who directed 2017's The Rider, but everything was still hush-hush about this project, but it seems as if Angelina Jolie is in talks in becoming part of the Marvel World 2 to become part of the Eternals franchise, if it's going to be a franchise. And finally, to wrap up the Marvel news, a sort of park movie headline in Hong Kong Disneyland, a new ride opened up called Marvel Ant-Man and the Wasp Nano Battle Ride. <laughs> That's a long title. Um... It has appearances of Tony Stark, aka Iron Man in it. The ride is very similar to Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin, where you shoot items for points as you go through the ride on a very slow-moving Omni-Mover. I left a link to a ride point of view, so if you're interested in looking at that, you can. In Star Wars news, very short Star Wars news, it was announced during CinemaCon that Ryan Johnson is still getting a trilogy in Star Wars. 
The director said that he will return into space after he finishes his films, film called Knives Out. This was originally announced back in 2017 by Bob Iger, which kind of fell into the background and forgotten about, and then there was rumors that it was canceled and everything because of the uh, hate towards The Last Jedi, but it's still going to happen. In a little bit of Pixar and Disney Plus news, as of April, <coughs> April 9th, Pixar announced that there will be a new series coming to the Disney Plus streaming service based off of Monsters, Inc., and it will be called Monsters at Work. Billy Crystal and John Goodman will be reprising their roles as Mike and Sully, and it looks as if this series will premiere next year in 2020 and will take place six months after the events of the first movie and how monsters are now trying to gain laughs instead of screams, just like how the movie ended. Other fan favorites will return like John Ratzenberger, who, who voices Yeti, Jennifer Tilly, who voices Cecilia, and Bob Peterson, who voiced Roz. He is returning as Roz's sister, Rose, and they're twins. <laughs> new voices will make an appearance as new characters like Kelly Marie Tran, Rose from The Last Jedi, Henry Le Winkler, The Fonz, and Lucas Naff from Raising Hope, and many, many, many more. <laughs> In DCOM news, a new trailer came out for the Descendants 3 movie, which they are naming the mystery trailer for some odd reason, because it just opened up all these cans of worms about the plot. It kind of looks like the very first Descendants, just with more villains. The big bad seems to be Hades and Uma, possibly. Uma is Ursula's daughter. We also get a good look of uh, Dr. Facilier's daughter, who has not been named yet, but we're assuming her name starts with an F, because, yeah. The plot is that the queen, which I am assuming is Belle, since she and the beast rule are done, got her scepter and crown stolen, and everyone in the kingdom is under a sleeping spell, and there's a threat of the citizens turning to stone as well. So Mal and her friends have to figure out how to stop it all. There's hijinks to be had, probably, but it looks like Uma's the villain, Hades definitely the villain, they could talk about Hades' ember, which probably has something to do with the stone. It looks like a big mess with all these trailers, but we'll see what the final product will turn out. Uh, yet still no date when it's supposed to come out. <laughs> As always, all the news stories that I brought up this week, there are links in the podcast news notes for you to check out when you have any extra time. So that's it for the news for the week. If you think I forgot something important, want me to talk more about a news article, or want to add your own comment on a news article, let me know by emailing me at disflexandtidbits at gmail.com. We'll be right back with the topic. So for today's topic, I wanted to continue on my villain series to the next available era. If you remember, the last episode I talked about on about villains was on the dark era of, an, of Disney animation that took place during the 70s and 80s that is called the dark era. I did do the Renaissance Villains with Kristen from and stuff like that back in the beginning of March with episode 14, so I kind of like flip-flopping between eras. So the next era is the post-Renaissance era that takes place from 2000 to 2009. This is also sometimes called the Second Dark Age because most of the films in the era had mild to little success because Disney tried to appeal to the teenagers of the Renaissance era and was experimenting with different mediums and storytelling that didn't quite land all the time. 
I do plan on doing another series on the different eras in the future to delve into the history and more in the movies, but I'm going to save it until I'm actually done with the villain series. There also seems to be a new trend with villains in this post-Renaissance era that they aren't the typical evil villains that we have seen in the past. We get to see some of these villains with the progression of why they do what they do and aren't really considered villains and more so the antagonist. So the rules that I've kept with the series so far is that I kept to the Disney animated movies. There's no crossing over to the Pixar films or adding any of the live actions in there. Villain sidekicks are also out of this list because I said before they may be evil. They may be as evil as the main big bad, but we're going to assume all the sidekicks are only working out of fear of what the big bad will do to them. Essentially, they aren't the mastermind behind the big plan to destroy or get rid of the protagonist. So, I've said before, the villains in this era may not have actually be villains, but more of an antagonist, so the list is harder to interpret than the eras prior. The more I delve into who the villain is, you will understand why I had such a hard time. Not all villains are created equal in this era. Most are defined as the antagonist because of small mistakes they have made. They show character growth and sometimes they no longer are the villain or they are just being programmed to do something or a big misdirection or misconception. So which leads me to a big spoiler warning for some of these movies in this list because one or two of the villains spoil some of the main plot pieces. Think Frozen. (laughs) So if you haven't seen the following movies and plan to watch them, I would suggest skipping this episode so I don't spoil anything for you. The movies are Dinosaur, Atlantis, The Last Empire, Lilo and Stitch, Treasure Planet, Brother Bear, Home on the Range, Chicken Little, Meet the Robinsons, and Bolt. So for the first movie in the era is Dinosaur, which came out in May of 2000. The villain here is Carnotaurus. And the Walt Disney World lovers would know him as not our dino. If you don't know, Dinosaur was a computer animated film about diners, dinosaurs, obviously, but mostly about a iguanodon named Aladar, who's taken from his nest as an egg and basically lands in Lemur Island and raised by lemurs. Then the, an asteroid hits Earth, and basically it's the end of times. So everybody's like migrating to get to a a safer place and the Conotars in the film are in a herd and they're kind of like velociraptors but like 15 feet tall velociraptors. So this is kind of a uh, one of those villains that are hard to interpret, interpret because of the fact that these are just carnivorous predators who are just trying to survive just like the rest of the animals on this planet. They're just trying to survive and when they see meat or any other kind of food or water, they're going to go towards it in a desperation to survive, but in a more bloodthirsty way, I guess. (laughs) They kind of remind me of the Dominus Rex from the latest Jurassic World movie, Fallen World, where everything's getting destroyed on that island and all the animals are trying to find a safe place to run to, but the Indominus Rex is just more concerned about feeding itself. And so 
while everybody's running trying to get to safety, the Indominus Rex just comes in and just chomps on a on a dinosaur, which just makes it more unbelievable. <laughs> That's what <laughs> the qualms I had with that movie, but I'm talking about dinosaur here. These are one of the, the tricky villains of a film because they don't really have malicious intent here. They're just trying to feed themselves and trying to survive this end of times that they're going through. They just want to nourishment and they don't care about anyone else. They just care about themselves and so try to find a way to get more food. And that's the whole point of their story. So it's kind of hard to depict them as a villain, but they are the villain of this story because they're just trying to put an end to the life of the main dinosaurs. So he might be at at the bottom here because he's just doing what Carnotaurs are supposed to do. So the next movie is another movie that came out in 2000, and it came out in December of 2000, and that is The Emperor's New Groove. Here we see Disney Animation Studios trying to change from the norm. They're not doing a princess, prince thing anymore. They are not trying to do a movie about love like they did in the Renaissance era, which was all about finding love. This one is kind of like a buddy comedy movie. We do have a prince, well, sort of a prince. We have an emperor, Emperor Cusco, is, who is just a spoiled brat, and that's all he knows. So he treats everyone like dirt, and he gets what he wants, and he's just so entitled, uh, which could possibly have created the villain, who is Yzma. Now, probably <laughs> Yzma is the, the favorite amongst out of any of the villains in this era. Probably because she's scary beyond all reason. (laughs) But she's also funny and clever at the same time. She's smart and she knows what she wants to do. We don't really know why she wants to rule the, the kingdom other than she has worked there like her whole life (laughs) because she's older than dirt. (laughs) So she feels like she's entitled to rule and she didn't want to go under a brat's rule like Cusco because Cusco is annoying, let's face it. It wasn't until Pacha that he discovered that what it is to be a human, to trust another human, to um, have empathy and everything that Pacha basically teaches him. He teaches him family. While Yzma probably was sick of everything that she wanted to get rid of him. She is technically a villain. She's not someone that you can just him and haw about and think too hard on her. She, even though she has been put in a, between a rock and a hard place in her position, she felt like she needed a promotion or a raise or whatever (laughs) you would call her situation. She didn't have to take things as far as she did. It was all thanks to Kronk that her her plan was foiled because she wanted to straight up kill him with poison and in the disguise of of a friendly meal, which is very deceptive. So she is a villain and she goes across the freaking country to try to make sure that he is he is dead. So we don't really know if she was going to be a good ruler. She does rule. She does get away with what she does until she finds out that 
Cusco is alive, and then she goes on a trek with Kronk to finish the deed. So, yeah, I, I think she is truly a villain here. There, She's very high up amongst the, the Carnotaurs in Carnotaurus in uh, Dinosaurs, so she's on the top of the list of the most vile villain of the post-Renaissance era. But can we give it up to the late, great Eartha Kitt for providing the voice for Yzma? Because that was... She is the perfect villain in voice and character and in personality. She is just funny and fun, despite all her flaws. <laughs> she is definitely a favorite, and I just wish that she would have sang a song, just so we could hear Eartha Kitt sing one last time. <laughs> The next film in this list is Atlantis, The Lost Empire, a very underrated film for the early 2000s. It was released on June 15th of 2001, and it had a very different animation style where everything was blocky, and it was also different because it didn't provide music like past films had. Emperor's New Groove didn't really have any songs either, but they did have a soundtrack in the in the background that um, ebbed and flowed with the, the character arcs. This one, not so much. There's not really a main song in this film, so it was kind of another experimental piece of work. They were trying to go edgier. They were trying to appeal to a older audience. So in turn, with the villain, the villain is completely different too. This is one of the very, not first, but one of the first villains to not show that he appears to be evil until the progression of the film. So this villain is Commander Lyle Tiberius Rourke. In the beginning of the film, while Milo is trying to dream of trying to find the lost city of Atlantis, he is introduced to the millionaire Preston B. Whitmore and wants to fund Milo James Thatch's journey to find Atlantis. And he runs into Commander Rourke, who is going to be the commander of the mission to lead the troops to Atlantis. And he seems to be like a stand-up guy. He seems to be very respectable with the commander title, so you know he's, I think this takes place in 1914-1915, so this is, this is probably taking place right before World War I starts, so he, he's probably not as hardened as he should be, so he, he becomes warm and inviting to Milo, and he seems to be like a stand-up guy. His progression as a character kind of reminds me of Clayton, even though Clayton was kind of a not so nice guy to begin with, but we, we kind of think that he's just doing his job. So that's why his level of, of height awareness is, is very high because he's doing his job. He thinks that like anything in the jungle is going to attack him. In this case, the, the character art in, in both of these characters with Clayton and Commander Rourke, it's kind of the same way, only Commander Rourke kind of plays the nice guy really well. He he does his best to get Milo to Atlantis, and when he does find Atlantis, he does stay behind while Milo goes on to 
talk to the Atlanteans. He does stay behind and act like everything's going well. That is until Milo returns. Then Commander Rurik shows his true colors that he only wanted to capture the heart of Atlantis to sell it for money. So money is a big factor for Commander Rurik here. And just like the villains of the past, the the corruptness of him mixed with the greed and the power kind of leads to his undoing. So he is a very true villain. He has a plan and he tries to stick to it. The only thing that's completely different is that it, not only he deceives the main character Milo and the main character's uh, fem- female companion Kida, but He's very deceitful to the audience as well because we thought he was a good military man that was just helping and just doing his job when he turns around and actually he just wants to ruin everything and steal for himself. Because you also have to remember the team that went with Milo to find Atlantis and along with Helga who was drawn very badly just like Jessica Rabbit. (laughs) Uh, unlike Jessica Rabbit, she is drawn bad and she is actually bad. She's like Rick's right-hand man, if you will. But Helga and the team were all behind on this plan and they wanted to steal for themselves so they can get money. When Rurik just basically crushes Milo, mocking Milo for thinking that he found Atlantis, he was and basically telling his plan and saying that he used Milo As soon as the team saw that Rourke was just basically dissing the heck out of Milo in such an unprofessional way, they turned on Rourke and they forgot about the whole plan. Except for Helga. Helga was trying to help Rourke leave, but just like Radigan in The Great Mouse Detective, he doesn't care anymore and throws Helga off. I think it was a... An air balloon, yeah, an air balloon, just like in The Great Mouse Detective, (laughs) where he he throws Helga off the air balloon to lighten the load so he can escape. But the thing that Rurik was trying to steal was actually his, his undoing, because the crystal that Milo slashes Rurik with turns him into a crystallized sculpture, and... So yeah, his greed was his undoing in in the end, even though Milo did the punishing blow. So in in a ranking order, it's hard to decide because Yzma really wanted to kill Emperor Cusco, and she even leaves her post as, as Empress to go find Cusco to go kill him to make sure that he doesn't come back. She is very comedic in her planning, and she doesn't come off as threatening, so that's kind of hard, while Rurik is very um, built, and he has that military background, and the fact that he can deceive you by playing the nice guy, it's it's kind of tough to decide who should be on top, <laughs> you know? So um, I'm going to go with Rurik because of the the deceitfulness and, and the quick change in his personality from going from nice guy helper to 
I'm just going to ruin all your plans in one day. Yzma looks like she's evil, so she can't really get away with it. She's not really that threatening. She has to rely on her potions while Rurik relies on strength. So, yeah, I think Rurik is like the stronger villain type here. The next movie on our list is Lilo and Stitch that came out in June of 2002. This is another movie that kind of squashed all the trends that Disney used to do in the Renaissance era. Uh, You can see this most notably during the trailers of this movie. Disney hyped up this movie to the highest by remaking the Renaissance trailers by putting Stitch in there and basically saying that he is annoying and he disrupts everything and he's just there to destroy anything. They were pretty funny trailers, but this kind, this movie kind of disrupted that girl meets boy type of cliche plot story that the Renaissance era was very known for, and this was more about friendship and family. I mean, the whole basis of this movie is is the concept of Ohana, and Ohana means family and family does not get left behind. That is the whole moral of the story. So this one is kind of hard to find a villain in this story because there are several antagonists, but there isn't really a main villain. You can argue the first villain that we see is Jamba, who creates Stitch, a.k.a. A experiment 626. So is he the villain for starting this whole thing, for experimenting and creating a creature like this? Who, honestly, Stitch looks like a teddy bear, so he doesn't look that threatening, although we do know he's super strong, he weighs a lot, and he has a filthy mouth. <laughs> so then, then you argue, is Stitch the villain because he destroyed a ship basically trying to escape because he was created to destroy and when he fell to earth he went to Hawaii which is an island so he can't destroy any kind of city. So is he the villain because he was created to be a villain? Then we also have Gontu who is the super huge shark space alien that uh, chases after Stitch to try to detain him because that's what he was told to, but he uses force to try to finish that objective at any means necessary because the Federation didn't feel like they had any other choice. And then there's also Bubbles, who we all think is a villain because he is trying to take Lilo away from Nani, but in fact... He is Child Protection Service Services only doing his job to protect Lilo in a unsafe environment. And when you're an adult, you understand these elements a little bit more. That you understand that Bubbles wasn't trying to be a bad guy. He was trying to look after Lilo's well-being. And Nani was not in a place to take care of a little girl at the time in Bubbles' eyes. So it's hard to really find a villain in this film because if there is one of them, they all have a redeeming story where none of them gets hurt, nobody gets killed, really. Um, They're all just trying to do their job. 
But if I had to pick one, it would be Jamba. He was just a mad scientist, and he just created Stitch out of just pure evil. And he does have a redemption story, but it's very, very quick because he is under arrest and was told to capture Stitch. But he never really does anything wrong in the film other than creating Stitch. So I am going to pass on Lilo and Stitch on having a villain because every wannabe villain or the antagonist of this film gets turned around and has a happy ending with no kind of evil implications in in the entire movie. Yeah, if if you think I'm incredibly wrong, please give me your argument, but I don't think any of these characters really are that evil. The next film on this list is Treasure Planet, which came out in November of 2002. This is loosely based off of Treasure Island, which Disney has done several times before. My personal favorite is Muppet Treasure Island. (laughs) Yeah, all the characters are basically the same. The story is the same. The only thing that is different is that it takes place in in space, which is beautifully animated with uh, a great combination of computer animation and hand-drawn animation. The visuals are just gorgeous as they're going through galaxy to galaxy on this literal spaceship. (laughs) This is another villain that is very two-faced, just like Commander Rourke. Although, if you have any semblance of the original story or have seen the past, if you've seen past versions of Treasure Island at all, you do know that he is the antagonist from the very beginning. He acts like a tough pirate in the beginning, but he has a soft spot for Jim, who is the main protagonist of this film. He is drawn in a way that he doesn't look like he is trustworthy. He's pompous. He is very greedy because he wants the lost treasure of Captain Flint, and he does anything to try to get it, even though, like, even trying to manipulate Jim at first and tries to get on his good side. But over time, he kind of has, like, an understanding with Jim, and he looks at his, at Jim as his son. So they, there's, like, a tight father-son relationship going on. They both trust each other at one point, but the fact that Long John Silver still wants that gold is still in the in the back of his mind but he doesn't want to hurt Jim in the process. We do kind of see Jim lose his trust with John Silver when one of Silver's crewmates named Scroop kills Mr. Arrow by knocking him off the ship and into a black hole. Mr. Arrow is the first mate of the captain here, and as soon as that happens, Jim is immediately distrusting John Silver. Silver is trying to look good and strong in front of his crew. His crew is giving him sass, saying that he has a soft spot for Jim, though Silver calls him a nose-wiping little whelp, and Jim overhears this. So he completely tries to do his own thing. So as soon as he has an out, Jim steals the map, and Silver has a chance to shoot him, but he decides not to because he, he has a fondness for the boy now even though he showed his true colors, and he tries to apologize to Jim at one point and offers the treasure, like, a, a equal 
part of the treasure, but Jim turns him down, which angers John Silver in the process. And he goes into a fit of rage and tries to kidnap most of the the regular crew that isn't part of his crew. And he kind of like goes off the deep end with this and he tries to forget everything and goes for the treasure instead. And in the process of getting the treasure, this treasure planet that they've been going after this whole time is starting to self-destruct. And Jim is almost falling to his death. So John Silver has a choice to make, either continue and get the treasure and leave scot-free or to save Jim, who he has started to have this father-son relationship and respects this boy from the trip that they they went on together. It's a hard choice for him and he ends up saving Jim in the end, saving his life and showing that he could be redeemable in a sense but he's still the villain by being as deceitful as he was the entire trip by using a boy to get something that he wants but in the end he does redeem himself so is he a villain by having those redeemable traits in the end in the eyes of the law in this movie he is still a no good pirate that broke the law turned against his captain and try to mutiny against the rest of the crew by trying to steal the treasure, does have that against him. And he tries to escape, but Jim kind of returns the favor of saving his life, and he gets away scot-free in the end, and you never hear about John Silver ever again. So he does get away with what he did, but he doesn't get what he planned on getting in the beginning. if that makes sense. I know I'm rattling on and on and on, but he is a redeemable character. I don't think he will be a good character from now on. He'll probably try to find another way to get treasure and be the filthy pirate that he was before, but he is not that bad of a guy. He's He um, did have this plan to steal the treasure and to hell with everyone else on that ship, so... He's he's really lower than Yzma because he had a plan, but he didn't follow through with it because he had a heart and he showed his feelings on his sleeve, you know? So he is below Yzma and above the Conotaurus. So the next film on this list is Brother Bear, which came out in November of 2003. This is another film that doesn't follow the same plot devices that the Renaissance era went through. This is another film that kind of strayed away from the norm by trying to fit family and friendship first rather than a love story. We get something that is a little bit more complex than the other stories that we have heard and seen from Disney. This one is kind of very deep. This movie is about Kenai, mostly, but his other brothers as well. The older brother is Sitka, and the middle brother is Danahi, and Kenai is the youngest out of all of them. It's mostly about brotherly love, this story, but it begins with a horrible tragedy involving a bear and the older brother, Sitka. 
who dies because of a bear attack. He saves his younger brother Kenai by trying to sacrifice himself and the bear in the process, so the other brothers kind of take it to heart about their brother's death. The two brothers kind of handle this death really poorly. One tries to better himself but blames the younger brother, while the younger brother, in anger, wants to take revenge out on the bear that that killed his brother because the, the bear ender, ended up surviving, but his brother did not. In the process of the revenge, Kenai does get away with his plan to take revenge on the bear. He does kill the bear. And in the process, it turns him into a bear, some kind of like weird ritual, a life for life type of thing. And in this lesson, he buddies up with this young bear cub who is trying to look for his mother while Kenai is trying to figure out how to become human again. And in this this long journey that they're they're taking to meet up with the mother, they discover that they need each other, but Kenai figures out that he's the one who killed this bear cub's mother in the process. It's a, it's a very hard lesson to learn throughout this whole film. This is another one where it's really hard to pinpoint a villain of this story because there's several different outlooks for this. I always assume that Kenai was his own villain. He, instead of trying to accept the fact that Sitka saved him, he took revenge and killed the bear. He does learn a lesson that, lesson that all of his actions do require a consequence there, and it hurt a friend in the process. So he does have a redeemable story, but the fact that he was quick to anger and go into those lengths to kill the very thing that he thought destroyed his life instead of trying to come to terms with his brother's death, that it was unavoidable no matter what he did. There's another possibility of the villain of Danahi, who is the middle brother. It it does say in many different websites of this movie that Danahi is the main antagonist because he almost kills his brother in the end. And what I mean by that is towards the end of the movie, when Kenai is still a bear, Danahi approaches him, doesn't know that that's his brother, and almost ends up killing him. So a lot of people think that Danahi is the villain because of that fact, but that's just miscommunication because how would he know that his brother is has been turned into a bear? So it, it's kind of hard to discover who the villain is. It is, is it the main protagonist that had done some evil deeds and became his own villain, but then through a long and grueling process of self-discovery and heartache, he finds out that he can be good again? Or is it the middle brother that felt guilty about pushing his younger brother away, guilty about not being able to help his older brother, and then descend into madness and almost kill his younger brother by mistake? You don't know because these are all kind of like life lessons and they didn't really mean to be evil. It just was all out of miscommunication 
just to learn a lesson in life. So I'm going to kick this movie out of the running as well. I don't believe Danahi was ever evil. He just was in a state of depression that he didn't know what to do after losing almost all of his family in one fell swoop. And he did what any human being would do, would try to protect his his land and the rest of what he's got. The same with Kenai, who almost did the same thing, but he was very quick to anger. But he soon does become the protagonist again, the hero again, despite his flaws. The next film on this list is Home on the Range, which came out in April of 2004. Home on the Range, not a plot of people, should know it. And if you do it, know it, you just wish you didn't watch it. <laughs> this movie is about three cows that are trying to save the farm that they're on by trying to collect a bounty on some rough and tumbler's head to save the farm. That is the whole basis of the movie. The villain in this film is Alameda Slim. He is a cattle rustler doubling as someone who is trying to ruin all the farms in what I'm guessing is Texas to take control of all the land. He will ruin these farms by stealing the cattle, which will send these farms to auction, which he would buy, a, buy out and he would collect more land. In trying to capture the cattle, he yodels, just like the Pied Piper, which this film is based off of, into a cavern and then sells the cattle off. This, his whole main goal is to just gain land, to gain control of the county, I believe. He doesn't go on more than that. <laughs> he doesn't say what else his plan would be other than just trying to obtain all the farm land in the area. And that's him in a nutshell, a very simplistic villain with a very simplistic plot to a movie. <laughs> it's a very short film, so you don't get much about him. He He's just a very simplistic villain who just wants power. He wants land and he probably wants money for just selling all that cattle too. He He thrives off of the power and when he doesn't get it he goes into a fit of rage just like most of the traditional Disney villains have done in the past. There's not much to him, there's not much evilness going on with him, so he's probably higher than Long John Silver in this list just because he almost gets away with his plan. He is not very redeemable. He is evil from the very beginning to the to the bitter end. Very quick and dry with that one because I don't want to spend too much time on this movie, so let's go to the next one. Chicken Little came out in November of 2005, almost a year and some odd months right after Home on the Range, and it is another computer animated film kind of trying to push Disney in that direction because I think they were trying to compete with Pixar in likability and popularity there. So you kind of see the nicks and cracks and flaws in this film. It's very ugly, <laughs> if you want to call it that. I, I kind of call it that. There There's some problems in, in the animation here. But that just happens when you're, you're experimenting and you're trying something new. So this film is based off of that old story of Chicken Little who 
claims that the sky is falling because an apple fell on his head, but this one, some, like, it, to him, it seems like the sky is falling because a piece of camouflage technology that looks like the sky fell on his head. So he gets the town in all of a panic, makes him a laughing stock of the whole town. With the villains, this is another one that is up for debate. I saw that Foxy Loxy, who is a fox in Chicken Little School, is the villain here, <laughs> which is kind of silly, I want to call it. Foxy Loxy is not villain-esque. She is just a bully. She teases Chicken Little and his friends, and that's about it just teases them. So you could say that she's a villain, but on a very small scale. The the one villain that I think that people would take with some heart is the aliens. This is another spoiler alert section. These aliens are the reason why a piece of the sky kind of fa- fall on Chicken Little. So as you know from the story, Chicken Little and his friends find a like little alien dude with three eyes and he's like orange and so they're trying to bring them back home they soon discover that the piece of sky was from a alien ship that was camouflage and this little guy was lost and he just wanted to get home and only chicken little and his friends knew about this so they were trying to get him home then finally the alien parents come down thinking that their baby got kidnapped, so they start attacking the whole town. It's kind of like an all-over story. It was just all a miscommunication. So you can say that the aliens with the red eyes were the bad guys, but they weren't. They were in mama mode trying to protect their young little whatever it was, you know? So I don't know if that would be considered a villain if they're just protecting. Like, if you were on the other side of the story and you were on the alien side of the story, you would think that these anthropomorphic animals living in this town were the bad guys because one of them is holding onto their kid. So I don't know if I'm thinking too much about it, but I am going to cross this movie off the list because I don't think there is evil either because it's like miscommunication. But if there was an evil villain here, it would be the aliens and I would put them right under Conatorus. I know that I said that I took this movie off the list, but I feel like I'm kicking all the the movies off the list, and I'm, I'm judging these movies way too harshly, so I'm gonna put them on the list, but they're on the very bottom. Almost two years later, in March of 2007, we got Meet the Robinsons, which I have stated before is one of my favorite underrated movies of all time. <laughs> this is about a inventor orphan boy who is longing to figure out who his mother was. And so he tries to invent a contraption to project his memories to figure out who his mom was. And he keeps screwing up his inventions, thinking that he will never get adopted by this. And during a science fair with his memory contraption. He runs into this futuristic boy, chases after him, and tries to stow away into his spaceship, which takes him into the future, which he meets, like, this wonderful family of wonderful people and, and inventors and 
It's just a family that he would want to be a part of. But he's always told that he needs to be in disguise by this boy and to always look out for the guy in the bowler hat. In this film, the villain would be the bowler hat guy, right? He's called the bowler hat guy and he kind of looks like this snide-looking, old-timey, 1920s bad guy. He has this, like, moon moon-shaped head and this long pointy nose and he just looks like a villain and he's always chasing after these boys through time periods. The main boy from the future is named Wilbur while the orphan is Lewis. So when Wilbur Wilbur tells Lewis that the bowler hat guy stole the other time machine and he had the other one who was created by his father it's kind of a convoluted story going through different time eras here and there, but they're trying to catch the bowler guy so Wilbur does not get in trouble for losing a time machine. You would think that Bowler Hat Guy is the villain, but we find out that Bowler Hat Guy is Goob, aka Michael, who was Lewis's roommate back at the orphanage. And he went on a horrible turn of events in his life because Lewis always kept him up with his uh, inventions and forgot about Goob as a friend altogether. And he turned out to be spiteful and hateful and he turned into the bowler hat guy. What we find out later through the rest of the film that... Goob, aka the bowler hat guy, was not the villain all along, but has been brainwashed and promised better things by Doris, or D-O-R-15, the hat that bowler hat, (laughs) the hat, the bowler hat that Goob was wearing the entire time. She was a defective invention that future Lewis had made, and was just trying to overthrow the human race and the only way he Doris could do that was to steal that memory machine that Lewis made in the past at that science fair. Yeah, it's it's very confusing, but you kind of have to tell the story of the movie to figure out the villain. So, who would be the villain? The bowler hat, hat guy, Goob, who becomes this wretched old man that doesn't, who isn't educated, who is depressed, that tried to steal the time machine for Doris? Or is it Doris, the defective invention that Lewis made? Or is it Lewis for almost destroying Goob's life and making the bowler hat defective machine from the future. So it's really hard to think about this because there's three different possibilities here of who would be the villain. But if you had to break it down, and I don't have to kick another movie off the list, would be Doris because she be who became sentient and became more aware of her surroundings after being defective to want to destroy all mankind. So let's go with that, even though Lewis is the reason why she is existing and why she is defective. In one alternate reality, gets away with her plan and enslaves all humanity by making more of these mind-controlling hats until Lewis changes the past. So she kind of gets away with her plan in two alternate realities. So she is pretty bad. 
So I'm going to say because of this weird alternative, al- alternate universes, she is second under Rourke. <laughs> Commander Rourke here. So Doris is number two right now. So the last film in this era is Bolt that came out in November of 2008. So this movie is another computer animated movie that stars a TV hero dog named Bolt who in the TV series has all these special powers. He has laser vision, he has strength, he has like this echo barking ability. In order for the dog to act properly on set, they kind of, the TV crew kind of manipulates this dog into thinking that the television life is real life. So they always keep them in the trailer or on the set. And they have the dog's owner, Penny, who is notable here because she's played by Miley Cyrus. They have Penny here trying to manipulate the dog as well and she's starting to feel guilty and she's been a TV actress this whole time who plays in the dog's TV show called Bolt. She actually helps the crew in making this dog believe that he is the super dog. Some weird turn of events happen where Bolt escapes his trailer and thinks that Dr. Calico, who is the evil villain in the TV show, has captured Penny again, so he has to go looking for Penny. And he actually thinks that he is the super dog that he trained in the television show. He thinks that he has all this power, and he finds out slowly that he doesn't with the help of the cat Mittens that he is just a normal dog. And so through this journey, they learn together what normal is because Mittens is just a stray cat that's never known human touch who is very distrustworthy and Bolt is very stubborn and thinks only one thing so it's like a clash of personalities coming together. In the end Bolt figures out who he actually is and tries to save Penny in a very uh, somber looking ending and Penny is so grateful for Bolt, she quits the television business so she can live her life as a normal kid. So that's the plot of the story, but there really isn't a villain in this movie. I mean, unless you really, really want to break it down, there is Dr. Calico, who's the fake villain from the Bolt TV show, or you can say the agent is the agent for Penny and Bolt, who it was his idea to manipulate the dog to thinking that he's like this superhero dog, convincing Penny that she needs to manipulate this dog as well. If that's the case, then he is like higher than the Conatoris and under uh, Long John Silver because he thinks he's doing his job. He thinks he has a good idea. There was no malicious intent other than probably making a little bit more money. So I guess he does follow under the category of villain in this story, but it, it's a bit of a stretch. So he's on he's on the bottom. So in this weird episode of post-Renaissance villains where Disney decided not only to experiment with their 
their storytelling, but they also experimented with different kind of villains, which is actually good on their part. They were trying something new. It didn't make a big splash as they intended, but they were trying something new, and which goes on to into the revival era next in the 2010s. So my villain list at the end here is number one is Commander Rorik from Atlantis. Then we have Doris, or D-O-R-15, the bowler hat. Then we have Yzma, Alameda Slim, Long John Silver, the agent from Bolt, Conatoris, and the aliens from Chicken Little. So do you agree with my list? Do you think Rurik is probably the most evil villain of this era? Or do you think another one is? Do you think Doris deserves that top spot, please let me know. Please let me know what you think of these series. I know this episode was kind of all over the place because I was struggling with what Disney considered a villain in this era. Um, Kudos to Disney for trying to experiment with villains in this era. (laughs) Also, do you think that I was just overthinking all of these villains? Do you think there's a set villain for each of these movies? I I would love to know your feedback on this episode because I am just having fun with it at this point. (laughs) Revival era will be in a couple weeks, possibly, if if not, probably next month. I do have a couple guests set up in the next couple weeks, so it it depends really on my editing skills (laughs) at this point. But I will see you next week. Remember that Disflix and Tidbits comes out weekly every Wednesday morning with a few bonus episodes of a movie review in between. You can also find this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Overcast, and Spotify and TuneIn. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider leaving me a review on iTunes. Any review will do, just so that I know that you're listening and to help other people find me. You can also help by retweeting the most recent episode on Twitter or DMing me feedback at Disflix Tidbit, or possibly buying one of my Disney snack t-shirts on TeePublic, which will just help the podcast stay afloat. Just look for Disflix and Tidbits on TeePublic and you can find it. And finally, if you want to continue or start a conversation about movies, I have a Facebook group called Disflix and Talk. And with that, don't forget, it all started with a mouse.